Well, let me shift gears back into uh, our study of Luke. We are in chapter 18. We're going to finish up chapter 18 and begin chapter 19. So we're 1835 through 1910. And honestly, this passage if this were uh, like a mountainous landscape, think of you know Swiss Alps, Rocky Mountains, wherever. If this were part of that mountainous landscape, this would be one of the peaks, one of the summits along that mountain range, this passage that we're coming to today. Um, I, there are four vistas, I, I guess we could say, that I want to make sure you catch today as we're looking at this landscape, uh, four things that we can take away from this passage, and I want to start there. First of all, in this passage, I think you will discover what you most need. Secondly, I think you'll remember where you came from in your story. I think it will remind you of that. Thirdly, I think it will help you and I to cherish what we have. So easy to take for granted the goodness that we enjoy. And then lastly, I know that it will remind us what we're here for. That will be clear as can be. Now also in this passage, we have the key verse of the whole gospel of Luke. I don't know if you knew that. Luke 19.10, that is the key verse of the entire gospel And so we're going to learn it real quickly. I just want you to repeat after me. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's do that again. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Look at you just memorizing Scripture right here Sunday morning. Beautiful. Now that statement is, is obviously very short. Just a few words. But it is loaded with meaning. It's one of the most concise yet profound expressions of the gospel in all of our New Testament. So I'm going to work through this real quickly before we even get to our passage because our passage helps us understand the significance of this statement. So we're going to do a little kind of theological survey as we go through this statement. First of all, that, that, sta- that phrase, that title, Son of Man, that's the title that Jesus most often used for himself. Here's an example. In Matthew 16, 13 through 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, we could hear that and think he's talking about some other guy called the Son of Man, right? Here's what they said. Some say... John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, I'm the son of man. So who do you guys say that I am? We've been together for a little while, so lay it on me. What do you got? Peter, of course, speaks up. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who the Son of Man is. It's a messianic title. In that title is the heavenly origin of Christ, the earthly mission of Christ, and the glorious return 
of Christ. When you see that title, all of those things ought to come to mind. That's what Jesus intended. It identifies Jesus with our humanity without in any way diminishing his divinity. Those two are loaded in there together. It harkens back to Daniel 7 where the title is used. Now keep in mind this is five centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth. Listen to what Daniel writes. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. Here's a suggestion of Trinity. And was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That is the Son of Man. And that's exactly who Jesus was talking about when he said, the Son of Man comes. St. Augustine wrote this, The Son of God became the Son of Man, that you who were sons of men might be made sons of God. So, Son of Man. And we're told, Jesus says, that the Son of Man came. Now that seems like an innocent little word, just sort of, you know, it's like movement from here to there, but don't miss that. That's gigantic. That word came implies pre-existence. See, you can't be created and come from somewhere. You have to have existed somewhere else to come to where you are. Not trying to get too heady here, but that's incarnation. That is God taking on flesh. It's the historical inbreaking of God the Son as a man. Huge theological reality. John 1, this is how his gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So who's the Word? Well, whoever he was, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was not anything made that was made. So whoever the word is, he was the creator. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, that one that created all things, that was with God in the beginning. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul writes in Colossians 1, as he is describing the Son of Man, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, 
all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, speaking of his resurrection. That in everything, no exceptions, he might be preeminent, first, supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God came. Now here's what that meant for God to come to earth. Christ Jesus in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God prior to his coming, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, the Son of Man, came. Why did he come? To seek and to save. This points back to the shepherd imagery uh, in Ezekiel 34. Uh, God is talking about shepherding. Interesting that we saw the burrow message on the good shepherd. So uh, God talked about shepherding his people, Israel. It also points back to Luke 15, if you'll remember those three stories about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. They all needed to be sought and saved, recovered, delivered. That's why he came. This phrase, seek and save, represents the initiative and the intentionality of God. And all of that is around rescuing people from the curse of sin. So great purpose associated with God's activity of seeking and saving. And I will remind us, even though we just heard it a few minutes ago, John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So God, the Son of Man, came to save you. That's why he came. The way uh, Jesus says it is he came to seek and save the lost. Once again, a very important concept in the gospel That is a spiritual condition with temporal and eternal consequences. It matters now, but it matters forever. That that lostness, that is a condition that will affect all of eternity for you, one way or another. Specifically, the theological word is depravity, sinfulness, falling short, I'm going to give you a couple of passages there, but here's a great way to think about depravity. You and I are not as bad as we could be, but we are as bad off as we could be. So everybody, it's a level playing field. If somebody is lost, that describes them in full. (laughs) They are lost. Here's what that means. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, we've gone away from what God intended. 
We have turned everyone to his own way instead of God's way. That's what lostness is. Paul writes in Romans 3, All have sinned, just another way of talking about going your own way, and fallen short of the glory of God. That's lostness. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul writes to that church, he's telling Christians what they were like before they became Christians. You were dead. Great word for lostness. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That points us from the temporary, living a certain way in a broken world, to an eternity under the wrath of God. Those are the two consequences, temporal and eternal. That is lostness. God, the Son of Man, came to seek and save those who were in that condition so that they might have life. That's the gospel. That is good, good news for lost people. Jesus, the God-man, did not leave heaven for earth to entertain people with miracles. He did not leave heaven for earth to set a good example, although he did. He didn't leave heaven and come to earth to gain political power. Like he owns the whole universe. He doesn't need a little nation somewhere. And he did not come to teach ethics or morality. Although he does. The Son of Man... Say it with me. Came to seek and save the lost. Now, let's see him in action. Look at verse 35. This is the Son of Man on mission. And I'm going to read this quickly. This is going to be a little bit... You're going to have to really use your thinker this morning to, to keep up. Because this is two stories of two men... That it's consecutive, and I'm going to blend them together because they go together. It's just a beautiful picture, but I'm going to read the whole thing first, and we'll get the whole story, and then we'll break it down. Verse 35 of chapter 18, As he, that is Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, love that, and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him 
glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Story number two. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. I know that song is just blaring in your heads. (laughs) He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm sorry, I just lost my (laughs) head there. (laughs) Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that is the crowd around them, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Say it with me. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Two stories, two men, sharp contrast between these two guys. Two ends of the social spectrum. One has nothing, the other has everything. It's interesting that they're following one another. And though they are as different as they are, they have the same ultimate need. Now, we're told that Jesus is entering, he's drawing near to Jericho. So let me tell you just a little bit about that city. It's a destination city. It was called the City of Palms. Just imagine beauty and extravagance. And I like the whole palm tree picture, you know, beautiful hotels, all that kind of deal. Um, It's located five miles west of the Jordan. So if you're looking at a map, you've got the Sea of Galilee, Jordan, the Jordan River goes down to the Dead Sea at the bottom. The Mediterranean and Jerusalem and all that is to the west, and then everything else is to the east of the Jordan. This is five miles west of the Jordan River, 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It is fertile farmland. It's tolerable temperatures. That's why it's a destination city. People come from all around to go to Jericho. It's on a major trade route, um, and that, of course, generated great business and also great wealth. So this is a happening place. Jews who lived in the north, as they were making their way to Jerusalem, would always pass through Jericho on their way. And they would make an 18-mile climb from Jericho up to Jerusalem during the feasts and festivals. That same path we're going to see in a not-too-distant future when we hear about the Good Samaritan who was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho on that same road. 
Now, the timing of our passage is shortly before the spring Passover feast, the Passover festival. Thousands of Jews are making their way to Jerusalem, and they are all passing through Jericho on that major trade route in order to get to that city to offer their annual sacrifices and celebrate the deliverance of Israel from Egypt that had happened centuries earlier. Now, we have been following Jesus for months, but since chapter 9, verse 51, do you remember where we were told that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem? So that's this whole thing has been the travel narrative. He has been making his way along to go to Jerusalem to lay down his life. He is now in Jericho, 18 short miles from Jerusalem. We're almost there. And he's not coming back that way. He's heading through this famous, famous city, and he encounters two men. I've broken these two stories, kind of mashed them together and broken them up into four sections. The impossible, a need to see, the friend of sinners, and overflow. So let's look at the impossible. You've got a man, a beggar, sitting on the side of the road, blind with nothing. He's destitute. He just sits there day after day after day, begging just so that he can survive. It is assumed that um, most likely he is blind because of sin. We've heard, heard that a couple of times as we've been going through Luke. That was the cultural assumption that, gosh, if your life is that bad, there must be some reason for that, and it's probably you. Just imagine that, sitting on the side of the road, in the dirt, with nothing to your name, probably starving most days, and you just have to rely on people, probably many of whom disdain you. Healing blindness was considered impossible. Even though other healings could take place, that was the one. <laughs> that It's just like, you know, I think, I think only God could probably do that. So keep that in mind. That's our first guy. Our second guy, he's got everything. He is the chief tax collector in Jericho. Here's what that means. So you got tax collectors, right? They're all doing their stuff around the city, but they got a boss. And guess who that boss is? Zacchaeus. He's over all the tax collectors. So they skim, right? They extort money. They skim off the top, put it in their pockets, but they got to pay Zacchaeus. So he is loaded. One, one commentator said he is the wealthiest man in all of the New Testament. There's a really good chance he's one of the wealthiest men in all of Jericho. So he's got everything. Have you ever wondered what, it, what would it be like to have everything? To never be sitting around and going, man, I, I sure wish I could fill in the blank. Because you, you can. <laughs> you can just literally do anything you want to. Don't you think you'd just be satisfied and fulfilled and happy all the time, right? 
I have a suspicion that he isn't. Because this guy, as much as he has, he's hated by everybody. Now, he's a Jew. So just imagine, like, old men weren't old men their whole lives. He was a little boy one day. He grew up in a Jewish family. He probably heard the great Shema and the words of the prophets and the Psalms and all that. He, he grew up going to the temple and worshiping God and offering sacrifices. He was told that he was created and was a, a person for God's own possession. He heard all that. And somewhere along the way, he decided he could get rich. But he couldn't get rich for nothing. He would have to trade his soul. He would have to exchange everything, all of his relationships, all of his community, every benefit that he might enjoy as a member of the nation of Israel. He had to cash all that in just so that he could be rich. Now, he works for Rome, so he's a collaborator hated by Israel. What do you think Romans think about Jews? Think they love them? Think they're great folks, so devoted, all that? No. They're nauseating to a Roman. They think that Israel is a joke. They are the empire that has conquered Israel. That's Zacchaeus. In the middle. Alone. Isolated. He's just got a lot of money. The blind man has a hopeless condition, his blindness. Zacchaeus has a prosperous position that is equally impossible to fix. Do you remember in 1825, so just chapter before, remember what Jesus said about rich men? It's easier for a camel big old gigantic camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's impossible. He does clarify two verses later in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So we start with the impossible, but the story's going to get better. Now these two guys... They need to see something. Now, the blind man, that seems kind of obvious, right? He just wants to see, period. Uh, Zacchaeus needs to see as well. There's an interesting detail here. It, it keeps referring to Jesus as passing by or passing through. And it gives you this sense that this is a fleeting opportunity, now, we know, because we know the rest of the story, that he's coming through Jericho once. So these guys only have one shot. They don't know that, but we're told that as readers, and there's an urgency about it. Like, don't dismiss when Jesus is passing by. You need to take advantage of that just like these two men will. The blind man, it says, he inquired because he heard all of this noise. Of course, it's all of these Jews that are probably passing through on their way to Jerusalem. He hears a crowd, and they're religious. He's picking up, and, and then he, he's like, well, what's, what's all the commotion? And they're, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he sits up. 
my only chance. I could possibly see. So he shouts out. Son of David, have mercy on me. Sort of like the phrase in chapter, I mean in verse 10. This is once again a loaded title. It tells us that he knows who Jesus is even though he's blind. It's, it's sort of this comical contrast with like the disciples in the story right before this one. They still didn't understand who Jesus was. But here's a blind guy, a beggar, sitting on the side of the road, doesn't know much about anything, but he knows that that guy is God. And if anybody can heal him, he believes he's the one. Now, he's told to, to quiet down, and there could be a, a whole lot of reasons. The first reason that I'll give you is when you say son of David, that means in the lineage of David, that means you're a Davidic king, what do kings do? Well, they rival other kings. And this is Rome. So it's kind of dangerous to be shouting about kings coming through in Rome. So they're like, dude, shh, quiet down, man. You're, you're going to get a centurion over here and we're all going to die. But he doesn't dial it back at all. In fact, the words there for when he cries out, there are actually two in both. The first one is he just cries out. The second one is like a shriek. This is so urgent that he is screaming at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, please stop. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. It's amazing. This is God in the flesh. He's going to Jerusalem to lay down his life. He's got lots going on. People all around him. Here's that. Recognizes the title. And he stops. Unbelievable. Zacchaeus is seeking, we're told, says he wants to see Jesus for himself. And all I could think of was just how miserable this guy's life must be. He really is hated by everyone, and all he has is his money, and money doesn't love you very well. And he hears about this guy, Jesus. Now, Zacchaeus walks with powerful people, so he's probably not impressed by much. But he hears Jesus is coming through town. And so maybe he's wondering, can this guy give me something that nothing else in life has ever given me? He did grow up in a Jewish home, so he heard of a Messiah. He, he was told that there was one who was going to come and deliver God's people. So he tries to get a glimpse. And the crowd is in the way. Isn't that interesting? These are religious folk. <laughs> These are the followers. They're like in Jesus' entourage. They're headed to Jerusalem because they're going to celebrate as well. But they're in the way of Zacchaeus. In some ways, just like the crowd was in the way of the blind man telling him to be quiet. Shh, shh. 
He, he didn't have time for you. Just a good note for us religious folk. Like, don't get in the way of people who need to see Jesus. But I think that Zacchaeus must have felt some sense of emptiness or loneliness. And so he just wants to see him. And he wants to see him so badly that he will shamelessly run. This is a grown man, wealthy. Everybody knows him. He's going to run, which those men didn't do. And he's going to climb up in a tree like a little kid just to get above the crowd so he can catch Jesus going by. It's a beautiful picture. Kind of reminds me when Jesus said, you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of God. Two men that need to see, both of them completely unashamed. They don't care what anybody thinks or what anybody says or what anybody does. They just want... Jesus. And so he shows up and proves himself to be a friend of sinners. For the blind man, the son of David, the son of God, God in the flesh, lowers himself and says, what do you want me to do for you? And to be honest with you, I used to kind of read that like what do you want me to do for you? Hear the tone in that? Kind of like Jesus is really something. But, but he's serving this man. Think of a waiter. He's just coming up and saying, how can I help? Asking a blind beggar, how can I help? He's like, I just, I just want to see. He does put the title Lord on the front of it, reminding us again that he knows who this is. And he is asking, remember, for the impossible. Only God does this kind of stuff. So he gets who this is and what he can do. And so he basically just says, be God for me. Have mercy on me. And I'd love to see. Can you do that? Zacchaeus, it's a little bit interesting because Jesus does all the initiative. Like he doesn't shout out to him from the tree. He's just perched up there. Um, and it's, it, again, it's kind of comical, but Jesus looks up and probably shocks Zacchaeus. He probably about fell out of the tree because he looks up and goes, Hey, Zacchaeus! I'm sure he's like, Me? You talking to me? Yeah! Get down here, man. I'm coming to your house. And I love the description. He hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I mean, he just about jumped out of that tree. He probably could not even imagine that it was happening. Like, is this a dream? No one has loved me for years. But Jesus wants to eat at my house. And that in that culture was a very significant expression of intimacy. Jesus is saying, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to be with you. <laughs> I want to be under your roof, eating your food. 
and let's get to know each other. Man. There's a Wesleyan hymn with the phrase, amazing love, how can it be? I think Zacchaeus would have sung that song. He's got to be just overwhelmed and he's beginning to see. And again, it's so interesting that a crowd, rather than celebrating the transformation that is happening in this person's life, they grumble. Now, there's two things there. Obviously, that is a gross exposure of their self-righteousness. But Jesus does a cool little thing here, I think. He knows that everybody hates Zacchaeus. And so even in this moment, when he says, I'm going to come eat at your house, he actually deflects some of their hatred toward him and pulls it onto himself. Because they're thinking, oh, so you're a collaborator now, just like him. And he's like, man, if that's the way you want to think about me, go right ahead. I'm eating at Zacchaeus' house. (laughs) You guys want to come along? Of course, nobody does. But he heads over there. And those two exchanges, they lead us where this passage concludes with overflow. Like there's there's no effort here. It's just these guys are so full of Jesus. It's just coming out. Look at uh, verse 43 for the blind man. Immediately, again, notice the urgency. He recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. It's just like rapid fire. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. It's infectious. When people begin to see the transformation of a redeemed life. Radical life change follows genuine heart change. Let me say that again. Radical life change follows genuine heart change. It's not the other way around. You don't change your heart first. You change in response to the work that God has done. Zacchaeus is also a beautiful example The idea here is they've already gone to Zacchaeus' house. Perhaps they've shared a meal. Who knows all the conversation that took place. And it says, Zacchaeus stood up. It's like he finally just made up his mind. i got to say something. Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Man, that was a lot. Remember? One of the wealthiest guys in all of Jericho. He's going to give half of it away. Just like that. And then if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and I'm, that's not an if, like, I'm not really sure, but maybe somewhere along the way I might have just defrauded somebody. No, this is like, since I have defrauded a whole bunch of people, I'm going to go back to those people, and I'm going to restore everything fourfold. It's extravagant. It's ridiculous. But he's so full of Jesus. He is so overwhelmed by grace that money means nothing anymore. He's like, take it all. Now, do you remember who this doesn't sound like? Do you remember the rich young ruler who went away sad when Jesus said, I want you to sell everything and follow me? And he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. And he was still trusting in that stuff to love him. 
Zacchaeus gets it. He's like, I don't need this stuff. I got Jesus. Such a beautiful picture. Um, just as a point of clarification, his restitution, so his giving away to the poor and his restoring the people that he took from, that is not the cause of salvation. Jesus says salvation has come to this house after he makes his declaration. He's saying salvation has come to this house and I know it because of the evidence in Zacchaeus' life. He's doing all that out of gratitude for what he has found in Christ. So let me take you back to those questions that we said at the beginning about what you might see. What have you seen today in these stories? Have you discovered what you most need? And if you're lost, as I defined lost earlier, you need Jesus. There is nothing else in this world and nothing else in all of your life that you will ever find that will meet your greatest need of lostness. Jesus is it, the one and only. And I would plead with you today to trust him, to ask him to forgive you. That's why he came, so that you could be forgiven. But Christians... You don't need Jesus any less today than you ever did. Don't ever forget that. Secondly, have you remembered where you came from in your story? You might not have been sitting on the side of the road, and you might not have been the richest guy or gal in Jericho, but you came from somewhere. Jesus found you somewhere. And here's what I have found in my own life. The more familiar I am with that, the easier it is for me to have compassion for those who are in that same place right now. The power of story. The power of story also helps me to cherish what I truly have. Even when I'm bombarded with all kinds of enticements in the world, I have Jesus. And so I'm full of gratitude and that that fuels my life. And then lastly, remember what you're here for. Followers of Jesus have the same mission that he does. Don't miss that. Why did Jesus come? Tell me again. To seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. And if we're followers of Christ, guess what? That's our mission. So I want to ask you to go to Jesus right now and say, Lord, I know there's a work that needs to be done that you are doing, and I want to, I want to welcome that. I want to make room in my life for your mission in me and through me. So I want you to very specifically ask him today to show you how to respond. And I am absolutely sure that the Holy Spirit will show you something. He'll give you a next step to take. Just like the blind man, he had one. Zacchaeus had one. You got one. Prayerfully consider that. And I'll close this.
Lord, I thank you. We say it often, but you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves, and we are grateful. We're also forgetful, so we're thankful for this reminder today, these two beautiful stories where you stepped in, you intervened in these two men's lives and changed everything for the better. Lord, we ask you to change us. Whatever change is needed, we welcome that. And we do pray that you would use us to bring this amazing, the greatest news on earth. Lord, use us to bring that news everywhere we go. Thank you for that. We love you and we thank you for loving us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.